following audio is from a sermon series called Rebuilding the Ruins. The story of Ezra and Nehemiah begin with the people of God in Babylonian exile due to their unfaithfulness. The God of heaven, who is faithful to his promises, then stirs up and empowers his people to walk anew in faithfulness and rebuild the ruins. For more information about Sacred City Moline, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Romans 8, 31 to 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all these things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be God. You may be seated. I'm going to pray for you. Uh, Would you pray for me? Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you that you woke us up today. We, We don't deserve it, yet your grace just pours out upon us, grace upon grace upon grace. And this morning, we're reminded of your greatest grace that you give to your people, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, that he bore our sins and transgressions, and through the power of God, you have brought him back to life. Would you, would you sink us deep in that truth this morning? Would you show us the significance of the resurrection? Would you enlighten our minds? Would you soften our hearts, God? Would you be nearer to us than we've ever experienced you before? And would the truth of the gospel cut through our hearts, God, and be the healing balm that we need? I ask that you would help me to speak with precision this morning, help my mind to think clearly, my heart to be filled with conviction. God, would it be for the good of your people that the word of God is proclaimed this morning? that we would hear and see the beauty and glory and splendor of Jesus Christ, the risen one, and that we would give our whole lives to him because he's worthy. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we are celebrating the most glorious day in human history, the best day, the brightest day. Now, this comes after the darkest day of by the hands of sinful man killed the only innocent man to ever walk the face of the earth. It's in the midst of this darkness, the the brightness, the glory of God, the power of God shines and he brings us into resurrection life. He brings us to this resurrection Sunday. Now for the church, resurrection Sunday every year and just not just every year, but literally every Sunday, the resurrection is the reason why the church gathers on Sundays and not Saturdays like the Jewish folk. The resurrection is a huge deal. 
The resurrection of Jesus Christ, in fact, Paul puts it like this, is the linchpin of Christianity. When he's writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, speaking of the resurrection, the significance of the gospel, Paul says this. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, if he is not resurrected, then our preaching is in vain. I'm wasting my time up here. And your faith is in vain. Paul knew that the resurrection was the linchpin, the thing that held the entirety of the Christian faith together. If there is no resurrection, there is no Christianity. In fact, in verse 19, going on in that chapter, he says, without the resurrection, Christians are to be pitied more than any other people on the face of the earth. Because the resurrection carries so much weight within our faith, it would be a worthwhile endeavor to prove to you the historicity, the the legitimate validity that Jesus was in fact dead and is now currently alive. I could take you to the evidence of the empty tomb, the tomb that was sealed never to be opened again, which is now empty. You can walk there, you can go to it today and see it's vacant. I can show you In scripture, the eyewitnesses account, not just in scripture, but other places outside of scripture that validate this, that people saw the resurrected Jesus. Jesus didn't just show up to his 12 apostles, to his close inner circle. He showed up to more than 500 people. And Paul, as he's writing to the first century church, he says, listen, you can go and ask these people who've seen it with their own eyes for themselves. Ask them what they've seen. I could take you to the profound change that we see through the apostle Peter, the guy who on the night Jesus was betrayed denied Jesus three times, said, I don't know the man. And this this Peter goes from being this coward on Friday to being one of the most courageous men to ever walk the face of the earth. Why? Because he met the resurrected Jesus. You can go to Paul, who is the persecutor of the church. He hated the church. And when he met the resurrected Jesus, Jesus flipped his life around and made him one of the biggest um, advocates for the gospel to ever walk, to ever live. Or James, another man. James was Jesus' half-brother. And after James met the resurrected Jesus, he was convinced that Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God. Do you know how hard it is to convince your, your brother that you are the Son of God? And James wrote the the book, the letter that we have in our Bible called James. We can look at at how the gospel spread, how the church grew so quickly and and across time and cultures and ethnicities at a rate that no other religion has had. I can go to all of these things and show you evidence for the legitimacy of the resurrection, but my concern today is not doing that, which I hope I did a little bit. But my concern today is to supply... uh, you, I want to show you that Jesus' resurrection um, doesn't need to be proved. The resurrection itself is a proof. The resurrection proves things to us. Now, what though? What does the resurrection prove? Well, today we're jumping into what is arguably the best book of the Bible, the book of Romans, and maybe the best chapter of the best book of of the Bible, which is Romans chapter 8, to dig into what the resurrection proves. Now, as we open up the book of Romans, I almost said Revelation. As we open up the book of Romans, it does us good to realize that this book was written nearly 2,000 years ago. And though it is old, it's it's got some, some length to it there, it is still incredibly relevant. 
The book of Romans is, is relevant for two reasons. One, the word of God is timeless. There's never a moment in time where it's not fitting, where it's not in season. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. But the other reason why it's super relevant is because humanity has not changed all that much over the course of 2,000 years. Now, there are some changes. We've seen how our, our culture is different than the first century Romans. We've seen how our language has changed. Technology has changed. I mean, right now we got TikTok and air fryers. Like, I don't think the Romans could even fathom what's going on right now. So there are some changes, but the basic human needs that we all have, the basic desires that we have as humans, the problems that we all brush up against as humans are still the same. Now this, to, to acknowledge this, is a blow to our, our chronological snobbery. It's what, a term that C.S. Lewis has created to, to um, articulate this tendency that we have to be modern people who look back at the past world, the people who've gone before us and sort of look down our nose at them. And say, oh, they were so, they were so ignorant, so small-minded. They just, they could barely make their way through. And yet here we are today dealing with the same issues, wrestling with the same desires and needs. And, and, and it just blows up this idea that we're better now than we were before, that we've evolved into something better. But the word of God meets us right where, you're, where we're at and as we look at Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 38, the Apostle Paul, who writes this, identifies three big things, three major things that we all need in life. Not just things that we need to get to heaven someday, but things that we need to make it through this day and the next day and the next year and the next decade. Things that we deeply long for. Things that we invest an incredible amount of time and energy chasing, always trying to grab a hold of, always trying to achieve. We need these things. And when we don't have them, when we find ourselves lacking in these three things, it causes a great deal of fear, a great deal of anxiety. We, we become insecure and unstable. And if those things are unchecked, what happens, it, it propels us on this destructive life where our life unravels right before our eyes. Now, Paul gets at these three needs that we have by posing three different questions in verses 31 through 39. These, these questions expose what those needs are. They point, his, his, his main intention here is to point to how these needs are ultimately found in God. And he shows us the resurrection is proof of that. And when you see this, when you believe the resurrected Christ, it will profoundly change your life. Not only will you find everything that you need, but your life will be filled with joy, security now and forever. So let's dig into this. First thing, the first need that the Apostle Paul exposes for us. From the very first days of infancy to the playgrounds and to the dorm room and to the workplace, we are all looking for someone to have our back. I mean, you're looking for that in your spouse. You're looking for that in your best friend. You're looking for somebody to be an ally, somebody to be a, a real source of help when you're in a pinch, somebody to be a true friend to you. 
And the reason for this is, and we can all attest to this, life is hard. Life is, is anything but a cakewalk. There are all kinds of obstacles we face, all kinds of setbacks. We, we face opposition as we make our way through this broken world. And when we find ourselves alone, when we don't have that help, when we don't have that ally, when we're alone in this big, bad world, we feel helpless. We feel vulnerable. We feel like we can easily be taken advantage of. Now, what intensifies this feeling of being alone, uh, of feeling vulnerable, what, what expedites this, this search that we're looking for, that ally, that friend, that true help, is that we carry around these common misconceptions about who God is and what he's like. These misconceptions intensify these feelings that we have that oftentimes feels like we're alone. Feels like maybe, maybe God is just too important to pay attention to us. Maybe God's just too busy running the rest of the cosmos to pay any sort of mind to me. Now, that, that's at best. At worst, our misconceptions can lead us to think that God is mean, that he's spiteful, that he's agitated with us, he's downright irritated with us. And so that when we face hard things, when we face heartbreak and sickness, we lose our job, we get fired, uh, we, we have a, a hard stretch in our marriages or, or, or in parenting, whatever that thing it is, whatever we feel that grind of life, it makes us to think that God is either aloof or he's vindictive, that he's, he's out to get us. He's just trying to rub our noses in it. Now, it would be a disservice to you if I stood up here this morning and, and tried to um, uh, just sort of soothe things over by saying, they're there, nobody's after you, you're, you're okay, it's all gonna work out just fine. Because the reality is, and this is what the Bible speaks of ever since Genesis chapter three, is that there are real forces out in this world that are out to get you. There are evil forces that want to destroy you. Now, I'm not saying this to be alarmist. I'm not saying this to make you all scared of some sort of boogeyman, but to shine a light on what is the reality, that there is an unholy trinity, Satan, sin, and death. They are, they are ruthless spiritual bullies that are affecting us, that are, are um, preying upon us the entirety of our lives, and they exist to lie steal, kill, and destroy. They want to bring your life to ruins, to, to ransack everything good that you've got going on. Now, how Satan does is he functions as a tempter. And, and God, as he created us, he put these desires inside of us, which are meant to lead us into God, to, to find our deepest longings and needs ultimately fulfilled in the one who created us. But what Satan, the tempter, does, he comes in and he plays on those desires in order to pull us away from God. He, he takes those God-given desires and points them in a different direction and says, no, 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 God can't really make you that happy. You've got to go to this. You gotta go to your career. You gotta go to love. You gotta go to whatever money, whatever that thing is. That's where you'll find what you're really longing for. As Satan tempts us by twisting our desires, we aren't just victims of his tyranny. We, we become culpable. 
We, we actually participate. We give ourselves over to this temptation. And when we do, we sin, or the Bible calls us, we're rebels. We're, we become enemies of God. We're not just victims of sin. We become rebels against God. Therefore, as we, we think about this, if God is really against us, it's not God who's against us. It's us who have become against God. Because of sin, we are made enemies of God. Because of our willingness to do life our own way, to pay no mind to the way God calls his people to live, we set ourselves up as enemies, hostile in mind, resistant to God. Now what sin does, when we give ourselves to sin, it eventually will run us into the ground. See, this is the great lie that Satan tells us. He says, sin is fun. It's a good time. Live it up, guys. Party hard. You know, sin is gonna be so much fun. But here's the thing. Eventually, it'll come back. It'll circle back around. And it'll run you into the ground. Sin sets you on this downward spiral that will eventually land you six feet under. It's what Paul talks about in Romans chapter five when he says, the wages of sin is death. That's what it ends up with. Now, because we are rebels toward God, he could have led us to ourselves. He could have just left us alone and let this downward spiral take its course and then we find ourselves totally undone. But the good news of the gospel is that God does not do that. The good news that we proclaim today is that God has not left us in the grave, but has resurrected us with Christ. Now, why? Why did God do this? This blows up our misconception. It's because God is for us. This is what the Apostle Paul gets at here as he begins in Romans 8.31. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? It's a rhetorical question. He's saying, listen, this idea that God is against you, he's working against you, that's totally false. God is for you. Now, how do we know that's true? How do we know that God is actually for us? Because there are times in our life, there are times when our experience, when our feelings don't line up with that reality. We hear that, that proclaimed God is for us and be like, yeah, right. Then why is my life so hard? then why is my name being drugged through the mud? Why do I just sense this, this pain and brokenness almost every corner that I turn around? Well, Paul goes on in verse 32 and tells us how we can be certain that God is for us. Take a look, verse 32. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. This is how we know God is for us, that he did not withhold his only beloved son, the son that he loved eternally before the foundations of the earth. God did not hold him back in heaven, but he gave him for us. He sent Jesus to do what we could not do for ourselves. God sent Jesus to be the big brother who beats up the bullies on the playground. The big brother who steps on the playground to just sock it to the bullies who's picking on the little brothers and sisters. Jesus stands up for us when we cannot stand up for yourself. Now, on Good Friday, 
It looks like Jesus lost. It looks like Jesus, trying to stand up for us, got socked. <laughs> he was beaten, he was bloodied, he was crucified, and to top it off, he was thrown into a tomb. But on the third day, he rose victorious. It took him three days to seal the deal, to secure the ultimate victory. And this is what Paul speaks of in verse 31. He says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He's saying Jesus showed up, the, the big brother who socked it, who put it to those bullies. He sealed the deal. And Jesus' death shows us, and it makes us conquerors in two really important ways, two, two ways that we have to understand. And Paul exposes this in Colossians chapter two, verses 13 through 15. Let me read this here. It says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and sin, the uncircumcision of your flesh. He's saying, you were getting socked on the playground. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. That is victory language. Two things. He says, first of all, our sins have been forgiven. The debt that stood against us, the, the debt that we occurred from every time that we've gone against God, we've done life our own way. Every time we've accumulated debt, God forgives us. He nails it to the cross paid in full. And this isn't something that God does for us once we've sort of cleaned up our act and got our lives together and started making some good decisions and, and come around. God did this while we were enemies, that while we were against him, while we were running opposed to him, God sent his son to die for us. So that's the first thing. He, he forgives our sin, the, the, cos, the, the, the cosmic treason, the, the rebellion that we have done against God, paid for in full. Now, the second thing that secures our victory through Christ on the cross is that the bullies are rendered powerless. You see this in verse 15. He says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. He's speaking of Satan, sin, and death. He has rendered them powerless. Not just that, but he's, he's put them to shame. He's humiliated them. They can never come back around and try to do what they were doing before. What God has done through Christ on the cross, he's taking the flaming arrows of the enemy and turned them into nerf darts. They, they can't hurt you. Death is a gardener. George Herbert says this, death used to be an executioner, Death used to be the end. Death used to be the heel that snuffed us out in the dirt, but the gospel has made him just a gardener. See, God has taken that which was meant to destroy us, to put an end to us, and now it is the launch pad for resurrection life. The resurrection proves that God is definitively for us. Because of the resurrection, there is no enemy that can stand against us. That's why Paul asks, if God is for us, who can be against us? Everybody else is neutralized. All of the cosmic powers that are working against you, Jesus has put an end to them. And it's in Christ we find 
our true sense of help, our, our true ally, our refuge, our strength. Because this resurrection power doesn't work just to bring Jesus up out of the grave, but it works to bring us up out of the grave. Not just that, but to use everything that's going on in our life. God has the power, this is resurrection power, by the way, to take things that were made for evil, things that were meant to be against us, and retool them to be used for our good, for our flourishing. That's the kind of power that God has. And God says, or he says here, Paul says, if, if God did not withhold his own beloved son, how much more will he give us all things? And when, when Paul says all things, he's not talking about like plasma TVs and cool new Ferraris and all of these really um, temporal things that we're looking for in the world. The all things that he's speaking of is the future glory that is to come. That everything will be made right, that we become co-heirs with Christ. What is Christ's becomes ours. This tells us that God is undeniably for us. The resurrection proves it. Now, the next question that Paul asks, which exposes our, our second big need, we find that in verse 33. He says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? And what Paul is getting after here is our need for security. This is a huge need that we have. In fact, every time my wife leaves the room, my one-year-old, to be one-year-old tomorrow, uh, demonstrates this reality. She leaves, he cries. Why? He's looking for his mama, wants that security. We, we desire this, this sense of permanence, to know that we're kept, to know that we have a place. And once we've seen that Jesus is, has reconciled us to God, that God has brought us back, how do we know that we'll stay like that? How do we know that we just won't go back to our old ways of self-sabotage and destruction and just find ourselves drifting further and further apart from God until we've lost our spot? Now, I wonder this because even though my sin is paid for, I still find myself sinning on a daily basis. I still find myself tempted to, get drift, to drift into that old way, the way of death that Jesus has delivered me from. And so it's not uncommon for us to wonder, am I at risk? Can I lose my spot? Can God change his mind about me? To, to, after reconciling me, turn around and condemn me? Now with human relationships, with the people that we build relationships we do this upon things like affinity, this common knack, just this, this sort of natural gravitation towards one another, either by shared interests, um, common accomplishments. We, we share these commonalities. And when we build these relationships, there's always this little bit of fear that lingers in the back of our minds of, will this thing last? Will this friendship last? Or if I change, or if they change, or if my mind changes about something, if something gives way, will we still be friends? Will I still have that relational security? And out of that fear, this sort of drives us. We, we are driven to keep an image, 
to keep striving to be good enough because that's what we think has brought us into that relationship in the first place, that we were good enough, that I was a good enough mom to be part of this mom's group. I was a good enough athlete to be part of this gym. I was a good enough employee to keep moving up through the ranks. I was a good enough friend. And we think we get on this treadmill of trying to be good enough, trying to, to keep our place, trying to stay in, because if we don't, if we don't maintain that status, what's to keep us from being booted? To, to lose that relational security. Now that's how human relationships work. Our relationship with God doesn't work like that. Our relationship with God is unlike any other human relationship where it's not based upon performance. Now, this is, this is the misconception of religion. Religion says, if I pull up my bootstraps, if I try to clean up my life a little bit, if I, if I stop saying cuss words, then God will be okay with me. Then God will like me a little bit more just so I can get my foot in the door and then we'll be cool. But that's not how it works. Our relationship with God is based upon the gospel. It's based completely upon the grace of Jesus Christ. You are not justified by your own works. You are saved by grace through faith. In other words, you are made good. You are made fit. You are made righteous with God, by God, through faith. This is what secures your spot, your relationship with God. It's nothing that you do. It's all of God's work done on your behalf. And so when we come to Jesus, when we put our faith in Jesus, when we trust in Jesus, we are justified. We are made righteous. We are made good. His righteousness is credited to us. Our sin gets placed upon him and nailed to the cross. That justice, that sense of, of justification stands. But the grace of Jesus doesn't just justify us once. The grace of Jesus keeps us justified. You cannot add to your salvation at all. Jesus did it all. See, the grace of Jesus keeps you justified. Now, how can we know this? We can know this for certain because the risen Jesus is interceding for you now. When Paul asks this question, who's in a position to condemn? Who, who, who's the one who has the authority to look at you and say, nah, you're out? It's Jesus. But he goes on and says this. Look at, look at verse uh, 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus. That's the answer to the question. But look, Christ Jesus is the one who died. He, he stepped in for your place. He was condemned so that you would not be. He, he, he was pushed out so you could be brought in to God's family. And more than that, he says, more than just dying in your place, he was raised. Now check this out. The resurrected Jesus right now in real time for the rest of eternity until the new heavens and new earth come, he is at the right hand of God and interceding for us. That means every time you sin, Jesus, the righteous one, goes to the heavenly father and says, that one's on me. That sin that... That sin that, that sin that Sam just committed right there, put that on my tab. And Jesus holds open his hands to the Father and says, look, these, these wounds have brought his healing. I was pierced for his transgressions. Jesus is always before the Father interceding for us. 
Every time you sin, whether that's your past sin, your present sin, or even in the future, Jesus is going before the Father on our behalf. Now, what this means is you do not have to invent a new way to justify yourself. That's the difference between religion and the gospel. You don't have to reinvent yourself. You don't have to reprove yourself. Jesus is standing before the Father doing that right now, so you don't have to. And what this shows us, the fact that the resurrected Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, it proves that your place with the Father is secure because he will not stop interceding for you. Now the question is, why why does Jesus do this? I mean, I'm kind of a dirtbag. <laughs> I, I, I don't deserve this. You don't deserve this. In fact, we do a lot of stuff to deserve the opposite, for, for Jesus to really to turn around and walk away from us. What motivates all of Jesus' self-giving, self-expending behavior? It's love. See, God isn't just for you. Jesus doesn't just, you know, keep your spot like a, you know, like a little placeholder. Jesus loves us. Now, love is perhaps the greatest burning need that every human has. You can't escape it. Every human has this insatiable craving to be loved. We need it like plants need, the wa- need water and sun. And if we don't have love, we'll shrivel up. Now, this is one of the things that provokes a great deal of fear, a great deal of anxiety. And a lot of times we don't even realize it. It's just this constant hum that's going on in the background. That's just this feeling of insecurity, this, this feeling of, well, I don't know if I'll always have it. Our biggest fear is that we might lose love. Now, when we're desperate to get it, or, or even when we're desperate to keep love, we do crazy things. We act like crazy people. I mean, like love makes you do crazy things, our, our hunger for it. We go to people, we go to places that offer a cheap substitute that, that will for a moment scratch an itch, but only make things worse in the long run, make us feel more empty. Or, We go to things to numb us from that longing, from that hunger. To go through this world, to make it through this life and not feel love, to to feel an absence of love is a cruel existence. Now, when Satan fails as the tempter, he steps in as the accuser as the truth bender. He'll, he'll play on this fear that we have and he'll point to our sin and our brokenness and he'll say, how could God ever love you? You're, you're a train wreck. You think God, the holy God of the world can love a broken and messed up person like you? You're damaged goods. You're, you're beyond the reach of love. You've just gone too far. This is where Peter asks his third question. This is where Peter points to the security that we have in the love of Jesus in verse 35. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now listen to this, he says, for I am sure, for I am certain, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus our Lord. Paul says, what can take away this love? How how do we know? Nothing can take away the love of God. Nothing can separate us. Nothing can revoke the love of God. What God has set upon us in Christ will stay upon us in Christ. The resurrection proves just how strong and how pervasive Jesus' love is for us. Death can't separate us. Life can't separate us. In fact, Jesus went through death and life in order to bring us to the depths of his love. He proves to us that his love is stronger than any other power or any other force. There's no stronger pull in the cosmos than the love of God. His love transcends space and time. His love reaches the depths of wherever we are. And you might be in here this morning thinking, man, church is no place for me to be. But the love of Jesus will reach in and find you exactly where you're at. There's no place you can run from it. And he'll keep running after you. He'll keep coming. And it's a gift because there's nothing sweeter in life than the love of the Lord. This is the kind of love that Jesus loves us with. It is a strong love. It is resilient love. If you ever doubt that you're loved... All you need to do is look to the cross. Look to the empty tomb. Jesus says to his disciples, there is no greater love than this than one who lays down his life for his friends. See, even in that statement, Jesus exposes the needs that we have, the the need for a friend, the need for an ally, the need for help, the need to be secure, the need to be loved. But more than just laying down his life for us, Jesus is raised for us, conquering sin and death and the grave, defeating the bullies that want to trample over us. He overcomes every single obstacle. And he keeps us secure until Jesus will come back again. You see, the resurrection is proof. The resurrection is proof that you are loved. The resurrection is proof that you are secure. The resurrection is proof that God is for you. God's shown us. He's proved it. The scriptures testify this. Now the question is, will you believe it? Will you receive the love and security, the help that you are in most in need of? And I'm praying this morning, whether for the first time or the billionth time, that the Lord would open the eyes of your hearts and receive this gift of grace that he gives to his people. That we would rise up 
and live into this reality, to live life to the fullest, to find that we have everything that we need in the person and work of Jesus and that our lives will, will never be the same. When we cling to Jesus, our past is dealt with once and for all. When we cling to Jesus, our future is secure. We'll be with him forever in the new kingdom. And it even reaches back in the day and changes how we live right now. Everything we need right at our fingertips in Jesus. And the resurrection is proof of all that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the proof that you give us. We are, we are slow to believe. Our hearts are fickle and we flip-flop often. And you are unchanging and your word is unchanging. And you proclaim over and over and over to us that you are for us, that you are holding us tight, that you love us deeply. We thank you for sending your son Jesus to take our place on the cross, to, to secure our ultimate victory, and by the power of God raising him from the grave, that we might be raised with him. Help us to live in this newness of life. Lord, as we come to the Lord's table this morning, we remember the sacrifice that Jesus made, that he laid down his life. It wasn't taken from him. It was, he, he did it out of his own volition, laid down his life. And on the third day, he took it up again. Help us to remember the sacrifice, his body being broken, his blood being shed, and it's by his wounds that we are healed. It's by this sacrifice we know that we belong to you. So with this meal, testify to that reality. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. We ask this in your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen.